This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6, page 811 in the Bibles and the chairs. After a look at the resurrection last uh, week on uh, Easter, we're returning to a series we've been in since last fall, a series in what's typically described as the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Lately, we've been in a study of uh, the Lord's Prayer, which in Matthew is found within the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through looking at these various petitions, uh, various phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We'll be looking today at verse 10, but um, for a sense of the context, we'll begin reading in verse 7 and read through 15. So, hear the Word of God. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to your word this morning. And as we do so, we come with thanksgiving for it. We thank you, Father, that you've given it, you have preserved it, caused it to be translated into English, not once, but many, many different times in various versions, translations. We thank you for that. Father, your word gives life. Your word, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, uh, brings new life. And we pray, Lord, as your people, that we would read your word and understand it and grow by it, be fed by it, and love it. Father, we thank you, uh, especially today, for this portion we'll be looking at. We pray for the help of your spirit in our thinking about it today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he says you should pray like this. He doesn't say you should pray this, although we do pray the Lord's Prayer as a prayer. Nothing wrong with doing that, although it occurred to me as we were going through it, we didn't do it today because we didn't have the pastoral prayer. However, I'm not looking back. Uh, We're going to go on from here. But typically we do pray the Lord's Prayer, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that as long as we don't fall into the error that Jesus, uh, just before this, took the Gentiles to task for, as we read. 
uh, heaping up empty phrases, uh, praying the Lord's Prayer perhaps with the mouth while the mind is many miles away. Uh, we want to be aware of that, and that's one of the reasons we're taking time and going through and looking at this in some detail, because each of these petitions in the Lord's Prayer are full of meaning, packed with meaning, and so certainly worth our time to think about each one of these. Uh, Jesus began by teaching us to open in our prayer by calling God Father, our Father in heaven. Uh, While the Jews were not unacquainted with the idea of God as Father, nevertheless to directly address God as Father uh, was, was something quite new. And Jesus is teaching us that as Uh, children of God in Christ, in Jesus, that we too have that privilege of addressing God as Father, though never forgetting He's our Father in heaven. He is the uh, lofty and exalted Almighty God, and so we can be intimate, draw near to Him, and yet with, with reverence, not with flippancy or carelessly. The first petition, hallowed be your name, we prayed that, we saw that we prayed that we got, we ask that God's name would be hallowed, that is, esteemed as holy, both in ourselves and in the world. Uh, There is no other creature. Well, that's not even the right term. There's no other being. God is not a creature. Being so worthy of respect and esteem and honor as the one true and living God and as his people who know him, it is our desire that not only we, but the whole world would uh, view God with that honor Speak of him with that respect of which he alone is worthy. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the second petition, your kingdom come, and saw that in those three simple words, we're praying a great deal. We're praying certainly for our own submission to the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We are praying for the success of the evangelistic and missionary endeavors of the church, that the reign of Christ in that saving sense, would be extended throughout the world. Now, Christ reigns over people who follow him and those who don't. He is a sovereign king. He reigns with or without our consent. But what we're praying for when we pray for the kingdom to come, for the expansion of Christ's kingdom in the world, is his kingdom over those who have bowed the knee to him, who have repented of their sins and believed in him and gladly follow him and name him as their Lord. And we also saw that we are praying for his return, because it is at Christ's return that his kingdom will be ushered in, in all of its fullness, when sin will finally be undone within us and in the world, the new heavens and the new earth brought in, those in Christ with him in glory, those who have opposed him in hell. Uh, And we pray for that. Uh, Peter speaks of hastening the kingdom. And one of the ways, perhaps the primary way, that we do that is through praying, which is the very last prayer of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, right at the very end of Revelation. Well, today we come then to the third petition in verse 10. Your will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, A very helpful guide to understanding the Lord's Prayer may be found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Toward the end, uh, it goes through a brief exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It's very helpful. And Shorter Catechism question 103, answer 103, uh, describes this petition. It says, in this third petition, we pray that God, 
by His grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to His will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. That we would be able and willing to know, obey, and submit to His will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. I want to start just by looking at that qualifying phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's will done in heaven? How is God's will carried out among the angels, among the, uh, the, the redeemed who are uh, in heaven with him now? Well, in short, we would have to say that God's will is carried out promptly, readily, gladly. God's will is obeyed perfectly. In heaven, there is no dissent, there is no grumbling, there is no rebellion. God's will is happily, joyfully, readily obeyed because God's will is the way of blessing. God's will is what's right, God's will is what's true. And so that expression is added, that qualifying phrase, on earth as it is in heaven spoken by one who prior to his incarnation was in heaven and was second person of the Trinity, one who was obeyed fully and completely by the mighty hosts of heaven. And so perhaps Jesus was taking something of a backward glance in his divine nature to uh, the joy uh, of heaven itself. But the petition here is that as God's will is so quickly, readily carried out in heaven, gladly carried out, that it would be done here on this earth. Now, as we look at this, uh, I think following uh, the, the, the outline presented in the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it would be helpful looking at God's will. What is God's will? What are we to make of this? What are we to do with this? You might think at first glance, well, I know what God's will is, and then you start to define it and realize that it's uh, a little more involved perhaps than we at first thought. But as we look at this, we want to... Uh, see, three things that we're praying here, uh, here when we pray, Thy will be done. In the first place, uh, we are praying, of course, that we would know God's will. How do we know God's will? Very few um, Christians have ever uh, not come to a place in their life where they said, What is God's will? What does God want me to do? What should I do? We face a decision. Maybe it's in terms of education or in terms of marriage or in terms of jobs, in terms of location. Uh, what does God want me to do? What is God's will? Well, it's a fairly involved topic. First of all, we talk about God's will, we could be talking about a number of different things. could be talking about God's revealed will. That is, what God has made known to us that he wants for us to do. Now, sometimes Christians agonize over what God's will is, but in fact... We've got this rather thick book that is filled with God's will for us uh, that tells us exactly what God wants for us. For example, God wants for you uh, your sanctification, that is, your holiness, your growth in Christ, growing to maturity in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 tells us this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Particularly, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul goes on to elaborate as he's addressing these Christians in Thessalonica. 
God desires that we live holy lives. God desires our sanctification, that is, our daily following Christ, becoming more and more like him. You want to know God's will for your life? God wants you to lead a holy Christ-like life. God also desires that his people be thankful people. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse uh, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Giving thanks in all circumstances. God doesn't want us to be grumbling, complainers, whiners. He wants us to be people who are uh, giving thanks to him. Certainly in good circumstances, but also in, in difficult or painful circumstances. Now, as we look at the Bible, we don't just need to go search out the passages that say, this is God's will for you, because where God gives us commands, where God gives us teaching, that is God's will, because it's God's book. And so when we talk about God's will, we could be be talking about God's revealed will, what he's revealed to us in Scripture. could be talking, when we know God's will, uh, about God's decrees, sometimes called God's decretal will, but his decrees. What is God's purpose for this world? What what has God decreed for you and me and all people in this whole world? Well, that's a hard question. The Bible tells us that God has ordained the end from the beginning, uh, that before we came to be, the uh, pages of our lives were already written, that God has decreed the number of days that we will live and what is in those days. He he has decreed the end from the beginning. I think sometimes when Christians struggle to know God's will, that's what they're trying to figure out. And I'll tell you this right up front and save you trouble. The only way you can know for certain God's secret decrees is to look at the past. Because what has happened is what God decreed would happen. Now, when we look to the future, we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 speaks of the secret things, the hidden things, and that's hidden from us except insofar as God has revealed certain things more generally maybe than we would like or than our curiosity likes in in Scripture. Uh, But God has ordained the end from the beginning, his decrees. We do know in hindsight, but we really cannot know for certain except, again, what's in Scripture as we look forward. Uh, One reference here, uh, just to keep in mind, uh, just one passage of scripture that speaks to this Isaiah verse uh, chapter 40 verse 16 Uh, actually is not it I hate it when that happens that's not it well the point is God's decreeing the end from the beginning now the third way that we speak of God's will that really comes down to where as far as our lives are concerned where the rubber hits the road is what does God want me to do and that's hard because as God's people, we want to obey Him. We want to know, you know, we want to do what God wants us to do. Or maybe we're doing something, and things start to get hard, things start to go wrong, start to go bad, and we say, you know, maybe I missed it. Maybe somewhere along the way, I took a, a wrong turn, you know, and I'm out of God's will. Well, I've wrestled with that, perhaps you have too, and it's kind of funny to think that somehow we could throw God off our our tracks. You know, somehow we took a wrong turn. God went this way, we went this way, and somehow God has lost us. You know, don't give yourself that much credit. God knows where you are. You haven't lost Him because you, at some point you failed to discern His will. How do we know what God wants? Well, we know it through Scripture, 
and we pray about it. And I've heard people say there's no way to know God's specific will. You have to evaluate the circumstances. You have to look at the situation and make a decision. I will say I believe that's true. I don't think that rules out that God very clearly leads us, that he directs us. I think both are at play. God's given us minds. He expects us to say, you know, what is the situation? What among these various options, alternatives, would be the best way to go? Uh, Seek counsel from others, evaluate our own inclinations. What do we want to do? What are we good at doing? And make a decision and move. I know my own tendency is to sit there and and pray and wait and, you know, hope that, that maybe God would send me an email. You know, pops up and says, Alan, you know, this is God. Here's what you should do. That can border on mysticism. You know, waiting for this sign, waiting for this this direction. At the same time, I think the Holy Spirit does lead. I think the Holy Spirit can put impulses or ideas in our hearts, in our minds, a sense of direction. Let me give you a sense of, uh, or explain to you what I mean, because it might make more sense in a practical outworking of it. Before I came to this church, uh, in, in 1994, we interviewed with a church, talked to a church that in many ways looked like a good opportunity. And it, and it looked, it certainly was a more stable church than this one was at the time, uh, and financially secure and so forth. I mean, the outward things looked very good and appealing, but the farther we went in the process, the more convinced I was I was not to go there, almost to the point of physical illness. In thinking about it. Now, and we finally had to say, no, we just didn't think this was, was God's will. It's just, we're increasingly uncomfortable. And it was not long after that that we heard from Old Peachtree and started talking to Old Peachtree, which, as those of you who were here know, uh, that was a very different situation. And yet one that, that as we went along in the process, we sounds somewhat cliched, but had peace about, felt good about, felt drawn toward. And in fact, you know, that's, that's what happened. Now, that's a very subjective thing. God doesn't always work that way. But it seems to me in my own experience that it's when I'm moving, when I've made a decision, that I either am confirmed that this is God's leading or get uncomfortable. But I often find if I'm just sitting waiting for you know, the email from heaven that it doesn't seem to come. So it seems that sometimes we do have to face the options, make the best decision we can, and move ahead trusting that God is either going to close off that door, send us in another direction, or confirm to us this is in fact what we need to be doing. Or to put it another way, sometimes we just have to live by faith, right? Certainly faith in Christ for our salvation, but also faith in the goodness of God to lead us and direct us where he wants to go. And I've said this before, and I think it's true, that if you are walking with the Lord, if you genuinely desire to want to be doing what God wants you to do, he's going to lead you in that. God does not play cat and mouse. He doesn't trick us. And so if you're seeking God's will, maybe as a student for college or for mate or a job decision, um, walk with Christ, make the best decisions you can, and trust him in that. And it seems to me that that is how... He, uh, he does lead us. And so we talk about God's revealed will in Scripture, his decrees, where he's ordained the end from the beginning, his secret will, where, whereby he governs this universe, and then God's uh, personal will for us, what it is that God would, would have us to do. Now, 
When we pray, thy will be done, we're praying that we would know God's will. Second aspect that the Shorter Catechism brings out is that we would obey God's will. Right? We're praying, thy will be done. We have to know it. We also are praying that by God's grace, we would obey it, that we would do what it is. Now, that may seem easy enough, but those of you who have followed Christ for any length of time know that it is not so easy to know God's will and translate that into doing God's will. Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, and he really he just sums it up in verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, you may know there's some debate. Did Paul write this from, as a Christian, or was he describing his pre-conversion point of view? Well, I'm absolutely convinced that Paul wrote this as a Christian for reasons of the text and for reasons of my own experience. Because I experience what Paul describes here. Does that mean I'm pre-conversion? I hope not. I don't think so. But I, every Christian has read that and said, right on, Paul, absolutely, because that is our experience as Christians. We certainly can see how Paul would write these things. I know what I ought to do, and I find myself doing things, and I hate them. I hate the very things I do. And he, he goes on to describe that, that struggle. Verse 15, uh, I do the very thing I hate. And then verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And I think he's writing as a Christian to say that. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, that is my fallen nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. What Christian hasn't felt that, that struggle, that tension, that agony? You know, wrestling with that residual fallen sinful nature that can seem so strong in our lives. So, we pray that we would know God's will. We pray that we would obey God's will in our own hearts, but also in the world. We want, similar to praying for God's kingdom for the world, we want God's will to be done gladly. As in heaven, throughout, not just in our own lives, in our own church, but throughout the world. And we certainly need God's grace. And that's what we're praying for, that by God's grace, His will would be done in our lives. We pray that we would know God's will. Pray that we would do, that we'd obey God's will. But there's another part to it. We pray that we would rest in God's will. Because we can know it. We can obey it. We can experience the outworking of his decrees, his sovereignty, his ruling over the universe, and absolutely hate him for it. Grumble, complain, joylessly, putting our nose to the grindstone. Doing God's will, obeying it, but we're like the elder brother and the prodigal son, the younger son, the one who rebelled and went off and when he comes home, they celebrate, and the elder brother is, is quite put out. He's quite incensed. And he goes to his dad, and here I've slaved for you, dad, all these years. You never did anything for me, but this worthless brother of mine comes home, and you celebrate. For many Christians, their attitude is that of the elder brother. Here I've slaved for you all these years, Lord, and you do this to me? I deserve better than this. So you see, we can know God's will. 
And we can obey God's will, and we can go joylessly along with our nose to the grindstone, thinking that we're somehow doing what God wants us to do. But the third element, when we pray, Thy will be done, we're praying, Lord, give me an attitude of submission, a willingness to rest in Your will, in Your sovereignty, in Your providence in my life. The end of this service, we're going to sing a hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. You could sing that mindlessly. But if you think about it, you realize that is a strong statement. Especially if you believe, as Scripture teaches, that God has, God has ordained everything that comes to pass. Everything. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. You know, it's easy to say that. It's easy to sing that. But do you really believe it when a child is diagnosed with leukemia? Do you really believe it when your husband is killed one afternoon driving home from work? Do you really believe it when you realize that you are losing your eyesight? Whatever my God ordains is right. You see, that's when you're making a very profound theological statement about reality and holding to it not just as a theological idea, but as the attitude of your heart. It's easy to believe that in our heads as a a statement, as an idea, but to agree with it in the heart can can be hard in times of painful providences. Um, a, a case in point, uh, and, and this is uh, an, an event that took place in the life of Sarah Edwards. Uh, her husband, Jonathan Edwards, was a pastor in colonial America. His three main arenas of service uh, were Northampton, Massachusetts, where he was a pastor for many years and uh, was one of the preachers of the first great awakening where the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit Uh, And many, many people were converted or grew in grace, not something worked up emotionally. In fact, Edwards tried to limit the emotional element of it as much as he could. Uh, And later he went to uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, western Massachusetts, which at the time was the frontier, and uh, worked with Indians and pastored a church there, missionary with Indian work and did a lot of his writing there, and then toward the end of his life became a president of what would later be Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Well, in March of 1758, he took a smallpox vaccination, and about a month later, on March 23rd, uh, he, or March 22nd, he died as a result of complications. They thought he seemed in the clear, things were going well, but then he became ill, and eventually died. Edwards was a man God signally used in in his day and and has greatly since, Uh, but when he realized he was dying, he spoke these words to his daughter Lucy there in Princeton. He said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God 
Now, he's dealing with the decrees. It seems to be the will of God. It looks like I'm going to die. It looks like that's what God has ordained. It hasn't happened yet, so he speaks somewhat tentatively, but it seems to be the direction things were going. It seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife. Sarah was back in Stockbridge. She had not moved down yet to Princeton. Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will, will continue forever. And I hope that she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. These were words prior to his death to his daughter. After his death, uh, when it was, took some time before word reached Sarah in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, of his death, uh, she wrote to, back to her daughter Esther, who was in Princeton, these words. And to me, this, this is as good an expression of resting in God's will as, as I know of. She, she writes, what shall I say? A holy And good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, that is Jonathan, so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. We read those words and we think, wow, well, she, she really, really trusted in God. But what we don't read is what's between the lines. Uh, and in fact, there, there may be some hint here of a real struggle to get to this point. Now, Sarah Edwards was a very godly and biblically knowledgeable woman, as you can deduce from what she wrote here. Because particularly one, uh, one allusion to scripture that she makes that you may have caught, maybe not. But she says... Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. Now, the rod is, a, is an image in Scripture of God's shepherding care. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, 23rd Psalm. But also, and, and more commonly, of God's chastening. And she, when she refers to the rod, let us kiss the rod, what she's saying is let us not chafe and grumble and complain against God because of what he has done in our lives, but rather embrace this as his shepherding, embrace this as his chastening, but not grumble, not complain, not reject what God has done. And then she goes on to say, and let us lay our hands on our mouths. That's a very specific biblical reference to Job chapter 40. Remember Job and his friends wrestling uh, throughout most of the book over what God's done in Job's life. And is it because of sin in Job, which he denies or at least doesn't know, uh, or not? And Job essentially challenges God at some point. Let me speak. Let me defend myself. Let me explain. And the Lord comes to Job and addresses this. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And this is Job's response. 
Job answered the Lord, this is chapter 40, verse 3, answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So when Sarah Edwards writes that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths, what she's saying to herself and to her daughter, and we've wrestled against God in this, prayed over this, but there comes a point where we simply have to rest in his will. We have to stop speaking, stop addressing God, stop perhaps complaining, stop questioning why God, and just put our hands on our mouths and be quiet and be still and rest in the will of God and trust in his goodness. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, her husband, so long. But my God lives. He has my heart. You see, we can know God's will. We can do God's will by God's grace as best we are able. But we also, when we pray, thy will be done, are saying, Lord, whatever your providence has in store for me, I will rest in that. I will trust in you. Painful though it may be, questions though I may have, ultimately, I will trust in you. I will trust that whatever my God ordains is right. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, we are saying a lot. We are committing to a lot. That we will do everything we can to know God's will. Do you do that? Do you read the scriptures? How well do you know the scriptures? Do you have passages memorized? Can you give the theme of the book of Romans? What's Nahum about? If someone were to say, tell me about Genesis, could you tell them what's in Genesis? Do you know what 1 John is about? Could you tell me where the resurrection passages are found? How well do you know the Bible? Do you want to know God's Word? Steep yourself in Scripture. Because not only does it tell you those things that God would have you know, but as you know God's Word, you are better equipped to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, who never, never leads contrary to what the Scriptures teach us. To know God's will. Thy kingdom come to do God's will. Do you truly want to do the will of God? Do you want to do what God tells us in Scripture? Do you want to be obedient to Him? Thy will be done. means to rest in the providence of God. Do you complain? Do you grumble? Perhaps you, like me, need to go before God and confess and repent when we have, a, have lips or an attitude of discontent about the providences of God in our lives. But pray that by God's grace we would rest in His will. And so as we close in just a minute and pray whatever my God ordains is right, think about what you're saying. Let's pray. Father, that is a large thing. To so trust you, to so believe your word, that we could say that whatever you do is right. Father, we pray that we truly would be people 
who long for your will and all of its ramifications to be done in our own lives, in our families, in our church, and in the world. Until that day, Lord, as even in heaven now, throughout the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells, your will will be done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.